1: Is the Solo Collective, and I am Rebecca Seal. How hard have you thought about the space in which you work? How much time have you spent thinking about how you want to set up your workspace? I think a lot of us, when we start working from home, whether that's down to lockdown or whether you've been doing it for years, we don't really pay much attention to the space that we work. We might buy a decent chair we might get a laptop stand. But I think quite often, we just kind of plonk ourselves down in a space and get on with it. And actually, it turns out that that's not a great idea. And that there are a huge number of things that we can do to make our spaces brain friendly and body friendly, actually. During lockdown mark one, some retailers who sell indoor plants reckoned that their sales increased by as much as 500%. So, I don't think it's a big surprise to any of us that we need to bring nature into our homes. I'm just not sure that many of us, myself included, really understand why that's important, especially when we're working from home. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation with Oliver Heath because he's an interior designer who really knows exactly why we need to set up our spaces really carefully and he knows exactly how to do it. Whether that is a kitchen counter or the edge of the dining room table or you've got an actual office space with a luxurious door that you get to close on things at the end of the day one of my big passions is trying to talk to people about how to create spaces that they can kind of work and live in that do both jobs and do them well and make people feel happy <laughs> basically and i think that you are the expert on that so Yeah, I can't wait to get into it. (laughs) Can you explain a little bit about what biophilic design is for people who might not have heard of it before?
2: Yes, so biophilic design essentially uh, stems from this idea of biophilia. Biophilia means a love of nature, and it explains humans' innate attraction to nature and to natural processes. and kind of explains why, you know, when we're feeling stressed and we decide to take a holiday... We tend to go to spaces with nature. So we tend to head for the beaches, the mountains, and the forests. And when we're in these spaces, we feel this incredible sense of calm and relaxation wash over us. And the stress just sort of washing away. And it makes us into quite different people. We, we, we have different conversations with people. We interact differently. We feel better. We, we get back to being at our best. We sleep differently. We all know kind of intrinsically that nature makes us feel good. So biophilic design essentially are a set of ideas or what we call patterns or principles that allows us to bring elements of nature back into the built environment as a means to reduce stress, but also to increase uh, recuperation.
1: So one of the things I've heard said about it is that it's considered human-centred design. And I just wondered why all design isn't human-centred. That just seems an oddity to me. And I don't have a design background at all, so this is completely new to me. Why are we designing spaces? And I'm thinking particularly about traditional offices that aren't human-centred.
2: The answer basically comes down to short-term thinking and short-term financial costs. People say, well, look, we've got this money. This is what the money we're going to spend to create a building. How do we create it as quickly as possible for the least amount of money? What they don't think is actually 90% of typical business operating costs are in staff. So if people aren't happy in the building, they don't want to work in it, they feel stressed, they don't feel productive or creative, or it doesn't facilitate interaction with one another, that people get ill in the building, sick building syndrome, then you know if these ideas aren't being factored into the overall cost of the building, then we're not going to be taking a human-centered approach.
1: And I think the reason that's really important to think about when it comes to solo workers is that very often we, and I speak as someone who did this, we just take the principles of traditional office design and apply them to our own homework. A lot of the principles of, let's say, inexpensive traditional office design and apply them to our own home working spaces. And that's quite sort of negative thing to do to ourselves and quite an unnecessary thing to do, given the greater level of freedom that we have when it comes to what we do with our own spaces. Does that sort of ring true for you?
2: Yes, absolutely. Human beings are enormously adaptable. We can work in in a white box without windows on a plain desk, but is it actually bringing out our best? Is it helping us to focus, to communicate, to be creative, to engage with ideas, Perhaps not over a longer period of time. And that's what we've got to think about. Really to understand biophilic design, you have to go back a long way and recognize and remember that humans evolved in nature for 99.8% of human evolution. You know, that, that was in nature and close connection to healthy forms of nature. And in a way, biophilic design is a genetic inheritance that allows us to very quickly recognize landscapes that can help us to survive, thrive and flourish or that are potentially threatening. Now, if we walk into a white box, think about the difference between those spaces that we've evolved in, spaces that needed water and greenery to attract potential prey or or food or fuel or protection. And think about how different many of the spaces are that we're now calling our workspace and go, well, this looks nothing like the sort of space that we know can support us. It's it's a stark difference, very stark, quite literally. So our approach is to essentially use design, not necessarily to express power or wealth or identity, which is very often what design is used to do, but to take what we call a much more intrinsic approach and to say, well, what would the perfect workspace look like? How can you use design to help you to work better? How do we design spaces that actually facilitate cognitive functioning, that inspire creativity, interaction and essentially put people in a better, more positive, open and optimistic frame of mind where they feel calm and relaxed and and set to do a really good day's work? And those are the sorts of questions that we ask ourselves.
1: And I'm right in thinking... Am I not that quite a lot of businesses and co-working spaces had kind of already adopted this stuff over the last few years? That there are big and successful organisations who have realised the importance of of the theory behind all of this and have used the practices. So it's not it, this is not a niche thing anymore. This is big.
2: Absolutely, it, it's enormous. All of those those organisations that we'll know and I don't want to mention that are really the vanguard of of workplace design have recognized the need to put people in a better uh, physical and mental space. So have incorporated elements of well-being into the built environment, but also particularly this area of biophilic design. And this is is important to recognize, that actually biophilic design is an evidence-based approach. So it uses studies and research that has been built up over the last 30 years that demonstrate the, the physiological and psychological benefits of incorporating elements of nature both real and artificial into the built environment and the benefits that that can bring multiple studies have shown actually that bringing nature into the workplace can reduce absenteeism up to 15% improve productivity by between 6 and 15% it can improve engagement enhance kind of overall occupant well-being and of course all of these things really important if we're going to take a good holistic view of what constitutes a good place to work, not just for the bosses, but also those individual occupants. And, And these blue chip companies are obviously in a war for talent. They want the best employees to go from university to them. So how are they going to attract them? Well, they want to create spaces that immediately appeal to them. Now, for a while, that was all about having, you know, oversized, children's playgrounds with, you know, bean bags <laughs> and table tennis tables. And that sort of stuff only lasts for so long before you realize actually we're not children. Table tennis is actually quite distracting and annoying for other people. So what is it? What's the kind of key uh, thing that binds us all together, that demonstrates actually this is a space where life can be supported, where life can be, flourish, and, and you can be a better person? Well, of course, we've all had positive experiences in nature. So in a way... This idea of biophilic design is a universal design ethos that appeals in some shape or form to nearly everybody.
1: Let's think about that working from home thing. And obviously, you know, my big focus is on people who work by themselves. And that can be in a lot of different spaces. So working from home is obviously one part of it, but some people might be working in a shed or in a garage or a workshop or in their car or in a van. You know, there's a lot of different ways that solo working can kind of play out. What can we learn from biophilic design about what we can do to our workspaces? Perhaps let's start with the home environment. What principles can we kind of apply to that sort of situation that can make a workspace, even if it's a highly temporary one, a better one for our brains to kind of thrive in?
2: Ordinarily in our working lives, we would have quite a a rich diversity of experience of space throughout a working week. We'd get up, we'd leave the house, commute, get on a train... Some grab a coffee, we go into the office, we might have somewhere to work, maybe somewhere to have a quiet meeting, maybe a creative space, a town hall space, maybe you've got a cafe or canteen. Now what do we have? Well, we're at home and we sit within our four walls and going, right, I must be productive and creative, but without that sense of diversity of space that enriched our lives so much. And I think many people now recognize just how difficult it is to go from one virtual meeting immediately to the next without packing your stuff up, walking down a corridor and going into another room and how those little opportunities were just those moments to reset and to recuperate and reframe your mind before you step into another conversation that needs detailed cognitive focus.
1: I think one thing we, we should note is that for a lot of solo workers, that's always been the case, regardless of of kind of pandemics and lockdowns, is that we can forget that we need that. We need those transitional spaces. We need liminal spaces. We need to kind of feed ourselves with them. And, yeah, so I just wanted to note, really, that we need to pay attention to this all the time mm. when we work by or for ourselves, I think. Yeah. It's um it's kind of, it's grander than just this
2: weird year. <laughs> like you say, lots of people were working like that already, but, I think there's a sort of shift in in people's minds now because obviously the vast majority of people are working from home, so there's a greater recognition oh, yes. of the impacts yes. that spaces have on their physical and mental and cognitive states. And that it's now not just the sole responsibility of an employer to make sure spaces are, are healthy and stimulating and engaging, but that it's come down to our own personal responsibility to find ways of, of making spaces better. Uh, spaces where we can actually spend eight, nine, ten hours a day without that, that sort of sense of richness of diversity. We have a rule called the 20 20 rule, I don't know if you know about so it's basically uh, every 20 minutes you look away from your monitor uh, for a distance of 20 feet which is about seven meters for at least 20 seconds and that's that opportunity just to refocus to, to soften the kind of visual gaze of your eyes to stop to recuperate for a moment and then get back to work and that's a very simple rule and of course it encourages you to sit with some opportunity to gaze out and have a longer sense of vision so sitting near a window is obviously one of those, those kind of many sort of simple things that you can do. Or in taking your desk towards the light, towards a view, is just a very simple thing that people can do and should be doing. Making sure that you've got a view out, maybe that you've got the maximum exposure to natural light, which is important for your circadian rhythms, which is what governs your sleep wake cycle, but also having that view uh, ideally onto nature or, or simply something that that softens the eye muscles.
1: And I think it it doesn't have to be nature in a, like a park. You know, I don't live near a green space, but I can look out onto the hedge in my front garden and there's a silver birch on the road outside. And I kind of try quite hard since learning about this stuff. I try quite hard to pay real attention to those things, even though they're not kind of vast green open spaces. And, you know, I don't live in the countryside and I found it to be really, it has really helped. I've been quite shocked at that power. Yes,
2: uh, there's a lovely idea called attention restoration theory, which suggests that when we're working, we have this sort of directed attention. So, you know, we're very good at it as human beings, you know, because hundreds of thousands of years, we've had to focus our senses on, on finding food. And now that we're sitting and working at desks, we don't have quite the same need, but now we're, we're focusing on a screen. So when we're, we're focused... It is exhausting, both physically and mentally. Now, attention restoration theory suggests that we have both directed attention, but also effortless attention, which is what happens when we gaze out onto nature and the movement that we see. And it creates what we call a sort of soft focus. And that sort of view onto nature is very good for helping us recuperate. And we talk about this idea, something called non-rhythmic sensory stimuli. So it's a complicated name for something that you've just described. We all know about it. So if you have a view of it from your desk, then great, make the most of it. But if you don't, then just make sure that you get out, you know, once or twice a day. You know, if you've got a pet, that's got a great excuse to go to a local park or woodland or forest or the beach, wherever you can, and make the most of some of that gentle movement and, and, and sort of almost bathe in the quality that, that nature offers. And there is that beautiful idea called forest bathing. Which is derived from a, a Japanese technique called shinrin yoku, which basically suggests that um, we recuperate much faster when we're in nature. Uh, it reduces stress. It helps us to get back to being at our best.
1: And there's some interesting research behind that as well, isn't there, about the chemical signals that trees give off and the way that we kind of find them soothing and calming. And yeah, all of that is so interesting. There's stuff about fractal patterns in leaves as well, isn't there? And in foliage and in plants in general, there was a piece of research that I came across, which talked about how the way that it stimulates our brain when we look at fractal patterns is very similar to what music does to our brains. And we've kind of lost connection with the idea that you know, it's not it's not even just that we need to look out of the window every twenty minutes for twenty seconds, which is obviously really important, but also that we need to move our bodies and get them outside and all of that stuff, that we're not built at all for the for the systems and setups which sort of traditional working life has imposed upon us.
2: Mm. Yes, I mean it goes back to that evolutionary ethos, doesn't it? Think of the the incredible amount of time we have survived and thrived in nature and how different our lives are. Now we find ourselves in little geometric boxes with hard edges and pristine white surfaces. It, it, it lacks so many of those elements of sensory richness, not just in what we see, but also what we feel, what we hear, what we smell, that were so fundamental to human survival.
1: But the same is true as well, isn't it, of, of working in, in your kitchen or working on your sofa or whatever. Like Even though those environments might be slightly less white and boxy, they're not usually set up for concentration and creativity so what tips could you give us for people you know really practical concrete things that people can do in terms of bringing kind of the best bits of sensory stimulation into their sort of direct working
2: environments. So there's lots of ideas about how you can bring elements of nature into your lives, but the simple things that you can do. Firstly, position your desk closer to a window. That'll maximise your exposure to natural light and hopefully improve your opportunity to, to have a view out, perhaps onto a tree or elements of nature. Create a dedicated private workspace where you won't be necessarily distracted by background noise. Make sure that you've got a good supply of fresh air. We forget sometimes that humans produce CO2, that CO2 can actually reduce performance in all sorts of sort of cognitive functioning elements. Think about incorporating some elements of nature you've mentioned that you carry a desk plant around with you. Finding different <laughs> ways of bringing plants in, maybe floor plants, desk plants, or, maybe, or even just, you know, if you're limited for space, hanging from the ceiling. Think about the different senses. So you might want to think about getting a, a olfactory scenting device. So, you know, incorporating some scents of nature. Pine and uh, citrus scents are quite invigorating. If you do have background noises that are distracting, uh, and particularly speech, if you've got somebody talking, um, as human beings it's very difficult to... Uh, filter that stuff out, and it is very difficult to kind of not be distracted by it. So, if you've got some of those, then maybe you want to induce some natural sounds. So, uh, particularly the sound of water is very good as a masking device. Making sure you've got a good desk light, making sure you, you you get up and move regularly, and that you've got somewhere to go to. That you know, a good day's work is not just sitting at your desk for eight hours. Of course, nobody's going to be able to do that. So, making sure you get up regularly, uh, move around exercise your body a little bit, uh, and have somewhere to go just to recuperate and recognize that as human beings, we do get tired. And when we get tired, our cognitive functioning, our productivity goes down. So so having a recuperation space. And, you know, remembering that as human beings... Sleep is really important, but it's also about getting a good amount of natural light and getting a balanced, healthy circadian rhythm. And one nice tip is getting what we call a photon shower, which is an intense burst of natural light for at least half an hour every day to reset your circadian rhythms, which will make you feel more energized, alert, and awake in the daytime, more able to kind of deliver on that required work, but also to sleep better at night.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Is there anything we can do which is sort of textural? Like, do we need to think about the, the, the surface that we're working on or any of the kind of textures around us?
2: Yeah, I mean, we often talk about investigating as designers people's haptic journeys. So what is what does it feel like to work in your space? And if you imagine your daily journey out into a traditional workspace, all those different sort of haptic experiences that we might have felt and experienced. And, and, and again, the kind of rather habituated richness of all of that, we, we forget what it feels like because we wear clothes, we've got shoes, maybe gloves and hats, but actually ordinarily what we feel under our feet uh, and on our hands and what we smell and all those sensory devices that I think we we forget that design should start to address those things. And I think for a lot of people, looking after and tending to plants is part of that textual journey. It is therapeutic just to look after something, to watch it grow. As you water it, you'll you'll smell that that scent of petrichor, which is that wonderful, rich sense of, of smell that we get when it starts to rain for the first time that we remember in summer. But again, we get that as you water your plants, as you tend to them and, and interact with the leaves. So... Yeah, think of the centers and that daily haptic journey and remember that that has some benefit to one's experience.
1: It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think that we've for so long become habituated to an idea that we shouldn't be distracted by things and stuff and that workplaces should be sort of stripped back that that we should remove anything that you know you might be able to fiddle with with your hands but actually that's not how our brains work at all is it we we like that stuff i don't have any fiddly things on how my desk you? i feel like i might need to change that
2: i've got i've <laughs> yeah. got so many There's a little i've got little toys i've got loads of things outside. it's a sort of ridiculous uh, how many things i've got around me tape measures mm-hmm. and Pen knives and all sorts of things. Uh, yes, loads of stuff. So I think when we come down to it, it sort of leads into another point that actually a lot of sort of biophilic design thinking is based around neuroscience and about the benefits that nature brings to us individually. And that's important, of course, when we're solo working. But what we are also starting to think about now is what happens when we do go back, even occasionally to a workplace, and how can we use elements of nature to enhance that experience because nature shouldn't just be thought about as a sort of individual benefit. It is also this, it provides this massive opportunity in what we call a socio-psychological approach to benefit wider communities. Because if you imagine that that sort of shared moments in nature tend to to kind of create the kind of a focal point for people uh, and it puts them in a more calm, relaxed, open and optimistic frame of mind. When you have that shared moment, you know, looking at a waterfall or a fireplace you know, with a roaring, crackling fire. It does have that kind of incredible effect to kind of actually bring people together and to f- facilitate quite different sorts of conversations. So I think it's important to to think both about the individual and also the, the wider communal benefits of bringing elements of nature into the workplace.
1: Do you think also that has relevance for kind of feelings of Zoom fatigue? Do you think if we kind of create better workspaces for ourselves when we are on our own, in that they're kind of more connected to nature, that we then could maybe find ourselves in a better frame of mind for collaborative conversations, even if they have to be kind of virtual or digital conversations for the time being, Um, or or indeed, as they will be in the future. Do we need to be thinking a bit less about having a really zany backdrop (laughs) for our Zoom conversations and a bit more about what's right next to us? while we're trying to have kind of creative and collaborative conversations at a distance.
2: Yes. I mean, being creative over a virtual medium, I think is one of the most difficult aspects for us as designers. As a team, we do meet every day and we're developing continuously new ways of communicating designs and what it is that we want to do. But certainly it's the one thing that I have missed is that that just sort of subconscious opportunity just to go, oh, What about this or that? You know, just to lean past a computer terminal, have a little conversation rather than can you go on Zoom? I've got to tell you something. And in these five minutes, I'm going to tell you exactly what that idea is. And then we'll sign off. How do we put people in that frame of mind to facilitate shared conversations and creativity? Because I think that's something that has really um, taken a hit in our COVID era of how do we have creative, engaging conversations, much in the same way as we did before.
1: I have got quite a lot of artificial plant action in my life. Part of that is in places like the bathroom in um, which doesn't have any windows and anything in there would die immediately. So there's something artificial in there. It's a really good artificial one. And then partly because I've got like a piece of art that's made out of artificial branches and it's really beautiful. And I love the way that the shadows play on the wall when um, the sun hits it, but obviously it doesn't move because it's made out of plastic. And obviously there are environmental consequences to High high uses of plastic, but do they do, do artificial plants? Can they play the same sort of role as real ones, or or is that a complete non-starter? No,
2: it's it's a really good question, and it's one I get asked quite often. You know, what what role do they play? My starting point is, of course, it's best to be surrounded by, you know, real, rich, sensory forms of nature. And imagine yourself standing in the middle of a forest. You've taken your shoes off and you can feel the quality of the earth underneath your feet, the coolness and the smell of the the trees and the the fresh sort of breeze on your face. Uh, And you can feel the kind of the trunks of the trees around you. So, of course, that's incredibly rich experience. But there are sort of levels by which we can incorporate uh, artificial elements of nature, and of course, all house plants are not, you know, native plants. They're tropical plants. So, to a certain degree, whilst they're real plants, they're not native to the country that you're probably in right now. If you're living in the U- UK, so in a way, that's an artificial representation. But what you're really talking about is is kind of what are the scales and how do we bring artificial plants in? So. You know, artificial plants can be incredibly realistic. I've used artificial plants in green walls in places where you can't put drainage, you can't get water to them, it's difficult to maintain them. So actually, you know, there there is a place for it. Firstly, you know, artificial elements of nature do have colour, texture, pattern, they've got those biophilic fractals that we've mentioned. And they can create some movement they're not going to provide the benefit in terms of you know the ability for plants to remove toxins to modify temperature or humidity which is what real plants do but they will add in all sorts of other ways so if you were in a position to
1: be um, redecorating you know maybe choosing paints at the moment what can you tell us about the way that the color of our walls might affect our mood or you know how we feel about work you know is is there any research on that kind of thing
2: Yes, I mean, this is really fascinating. And this sort of falls into what we call the indirect connection to nature of how we use natural colours, materials, textures, and patterns to influence the way we feel in a space. Now, we use an idea called the ecological valence theory, which suggests that we react very well to colours that we've previously had positive experiences of. Now, for many people, those positive experiences have been time spent in nature. So as a result, Shades of blue remind us of cool, calm pools of water and as a result are very calming and relaxing. So, so shades of blue are very good for places where you want to relax, like bedrooms or maybe lounges, whereas greens remind us of, of the stimulating, energizing quality of spring and nature. And they're more creative and energizing. Yellows remind us of the warmth of summer sunshine and ripe crops. They're very warm, they're very welcome, they're very sociable colors. So they're great for like dining rooms or kitchens or social spaces. They, you know, they're very uplifting colors. And then colors like orange and reds are very warming colors. They remind us of ripe fruits and berries and you know maybe the energy that is taken to to kind of collect them to climb a tree to pick an apple and these are colors are very stimulating and energizing so they're great in in small amounts in spaces where you want to be energized stimulated and productive so if in a workspace you you kind of want to go well what color it's like well little dashes of reds and oranges can be very stimulating and although this rule is quite generalized and will depend on person to person I think it's a really good rule to work by. And what is important is that you don't overwhelm people. So you don't paint a whole room bright red because you want to be really stimulated in it. That's just going to be be overwhelming. It's going to be too much. But think about the way that you see colour in nature and how it might create that very stimulating, energising quality or how it might make you feel calm and relaxed.
1: What advice would you give to somebody who, I'm just thinking of someone who maybe lives in a basement flat, it's rented, They don't have great light. The window doesn't look out onto much, maybe a brick wall. I'm actually envisaging a basement flat that I lived in. (laughs) So it's painted white. It's got like wood chip wallpaper and low ceilings. And that's the room, you know, that sitting room is the room where they have to do their work every day. What can someone in that situation do to help themselves either in terms of light or in in terms of kind of small purchases that they could make to improve how that room feels when they're working in it?
2: yeah I mean, firstly, make the most of any local natural resources that you've got, like I say, get out as much as you can. Um, but of course, when it comes down to it, you're still working in your desk in in that sort of dark, cramped room. A really uh, great product that I've been using is a uh, a light alarm clock. The other simple things that you can do, bring uh, images of nature. or or moments that remind you of of time spent in nature closer to you. There's research that demonstrates that even digital imagery of elements of nature has improved occupant experiences in healthcare scenarios. So so it's really about eliciting those positive emotional responses to spaces. We've also launched an online course recently called Biophilic Design in the Home. So for any aspiring designers, students or professional designers out there, uh, the course is basically aimed at you and to help you to understand the many benefits of bringing nature into the home and the benefits it can bring to different base types. So the benefits it brings to the spaces that you cook in, you eat in, your bedroom, bathroom, and also your workspace. So there's lots of ways of of getting our students and people doing the course to not just only understand it, but to engage with the ideas.
1: I think I'm right in saying that this is a pre-pandemic project, much like my book about working from home was not a pandemic related thing. this your course was something that predates that as well. Is that right? did it how did things change for you if at all in terms of that course? did it become did it start feeling far more widely relevant than you kind of anticipated? do you think?
2: Yes, absolutely. We've been working on this course for about 18 months and pulling it together, pulling all the ideas together and translating them for the home and then the pandemic hit. And it's like, well, this is more important than ever. People are going to be squeezing all these other functions, hospitality, healthcare, and the workplace into the home. How do we we gain benefit from all that research that we've got? And it is literally hundreds of studies. And bring that into it and realise it in a way that's accessible. And, of course, people are living in homes in different ways, whether they're they're renting or they're owners. And so, obviously, have different budgets. And it's important to recognise that, biophilic design is not about money, it's about how we think about the opportunities of connecting with nature and realising the many sort of cost strategies of bringing nature into the home and and how we can do that. So to create something that's kind of will inspire people and to think creatively about nature and and how it can be incorporated.
1: I'm so enjoying having conversations like this because I feel as though this could be a chance for us to shift something really profound and I'm, I'm joyful at that prospect for all that it's come through the worst of things. I feel like we, you know, we could look back and think, yeah, that, that was when things changed for the better.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, more and more we're hearing that whilst people may be heading back to work, there's a there's a very strong likelihood that also they will retain some of that work from home because it does provide benefits for clarity of focus and lack of distraction and and maybe we will like you say get a, a better level of balance because for any of the experienced sort of work from home people they'll know about that that the, the dangers of the bleed between social and work time and how it's very difficult at the home to kind of make a clear divisional barrier. But now I think because there are so many more people experiencing that, there's a greater recognition of just how dangerous it is to allow it to happen and how we need to set strict rules about when we go, okay, that's it, that's enough. Turn I'm not answering emails after seven o'clock at night, and I'm not going to be answering before seven in the morning. And that's home time.
1: Brilliant. I am extremely tempted to sign up. I'm not sure I can fit many more plants into um, my downstairs, like we've got an open plan downstairs, but I, I can I can certainly try. <laughs> There's
2: so much more you can do. Don't worry.
1: Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. I've learned so much. And I think it's um, going to be a conversation which will prove to be really useful for people to listen to. So I'm really, really grateful. Thank you.
2: Great. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you, particularly with this kind of slightly different focus of, you know, how do we bring this into the home and what does it mean for the home worker? So thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Oh, It's such a pleasure. Thank you.
1: It's so easy, isn't it, to assume that we need to work in white blank spaces because that's been the language of office design for such a long time. And I think we need to think more about (laughs) colour and texture and light and one of the brilliant things about working solo is that very very often you get to make those choices yourself we don't have to follow the old-fashioned language of office design we can make choices you know to a greater or lesser extent we have a level of freedom that allows us to create these environments and make them as brain and body friendly as possible and that's such a positive so i'm off to buy some yellow paint If you want to learn more from Oliver, and I think we all should, he recently launched the Oliver Heath Design School and there is a course there on how to implement biophilic design in the home. So head over to his website, oliverheath.com, to find out more about how you can sign up. If you've liked what you've heard on The Solo Collective, then I would love it if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and do share us with anybody who you know who you think might benefit from joining us in The Solo Collective. You have been listening to a Chalk and Blade original, The Solo Collective, with me, Rebecca Seal. Produced by Laura Hyde, with support from Fatuma Keira and Jill Achineku. Original music by D Plume and mixed by Alex Portfelix.